0: Welcome to
1: Scholar Tea. <laughs> Scholar Tea. We are scholars giving you the tea. I am Cameron Carl. And I'm Shauna. And welcome to our returners. And if you're just joining us, welcome for the ride. Should we take your temperature? Yes, please. So if your mood were a television show, what would it be called and why?
0: I don't know if I'm allowed to cuss right away, just straight out the gate.
1: And what has stopped you before?
0: <sighs> Shush. Okay, well, mine, I was thinking of two things. It was either WTF to keep it clean, to make sure that it could make it on primetime television. But that's just how it feels right now. Like, what else could happen? What the fuck, you know? The other one is actually a quote of mine. Personally, I was quoted by a lovely colleague recently on their own Facebook page, and it was, (laughs) Jesus be a fucking fence protect me from all this nonsense, right? Um, Did I see that? I think I saw that. Yeah, it's it's possible. (laughs) I was just like, oh my God, I can't. I can't with these people. So those would be my television shows because that's how I'm feeling.
1: So mine would be, hey, sis, present. (laughs) Hey, sis, because it's a beautiful day. You know, Mm that's my standard greeting for the people. And then present is like a tag. I use it often, right? It means that like I am... Here for it, I am present with you. I am always present, never absent. That's my mood right now.
0: You're the yin to my yang. (laughs) How am I uh, crunk? up in here and you're like oh it's a beautiful day so it's sunny. so gorgeous
1: yeah really <laughs> some people so people have been commenting to me about the podcast in the sense of our chemistry mm-hmm. right like oh you two just play off each other so well <laughs> I was like, oh, you know it's fun right it's fun yeah ying to your yang yeah all right so we have another exciting episode ahead of us um so what we're getting into today is we're obviously going to announce um celebrate our scholar of the week who we are so excited to celebrate. I've known Dr. Susanna Nunez for almost eight years now. She was at Iowa State when I came as a doc student. We are excited to celebrate her and the important work that she is doing. Um, of course, we have to talk about what's been happening in these streets. Some people are picking up the phone and just calling the police on black people. and I think we have some thoughts about that. Then we want to really engage in a candid conversation with Dr. Vijay Kanagala. I feel like this is like a cyclone episode. Another mm. Mm. Iowa State alum, um, and then we have to spill a little tea and thinking about navigating the academy. Black women administrators, the challenges at bay. What's problematic? I kind of want to talk about whole tip black man. I just finished season two of Dear White People. Have you started yet? I have not watched that series at all. Y'all get her, get her. So we're gonna talk about whole tip black man in the academy. Um, I want to address that, and then secret sauce, as always. Them jokes, jokes. Them jokes. That was another thing people keep commenting on. It's yeah. like, I love the jokes. <laughs> love the jokes. Hater. The jokes are so good. You're such a hater. I'm not. not you <laughs> secretly love them. So, shall we get started? Yes. 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 All right. Let's go.
0: Okay. So, our scholar of the week this week is Dr. Susana Munoz. Dr. Susana Munoz is an assistant professor and co-coordinator of the Higher Education Leadership Program, including doctoral specialization, in the School of Education at Colorado State University. Before accepting a faculty role at CSU, Dr. Munoz served as a faculty member at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee in the Administrative Leadership Department. Her scholarly interests center on the experiences of underserved populations in higher education. Specifically, she focuses her research on issues of access, equity, and college persistence for undocumented Latino-Latina students while employing perspectives such as Latino critical race theory, Chicana feminist epistemology, and college persistence theory to identify and deconstruct issues of power and inequities as experienced by these populations. She utilizes multiple research methods as mechanisms to examine these matters with the ultimate goal of informing immigration policy and higher education practices. You can add her on Twitter at Susanna Ph.D. Y'all, they don't really want us to live right now. If you're black, don't try to barbecue. Take a walk in the park take a nap in your commons, drink a fucking cup of coffee, conduct community service with your divine nine kin, serve as a real estate agent in a white neighborhood, do a little shimmy shake across the graduation stage, don't pour a glass of water, don't charge your phone, don't eat a taco, don't walk around with the laptop, change the sheets on your bed, just don't breathe at all. And it's quite exhausting and over time increasingly detrimental to the psyches of underrepresented folk blanking while black, that could be walking, running, breathing, sleeping, driving, has been an issue since we were captured and enslaved in the North and South Americas. And within the past few weeks, three at the least, um, a slew of articles have hit the media where white people call the cops on folks minding their damn business. Memes are plentiful. As we often do, we use humor to alleviate our pain and to illustrate our existence. And if you haven't already, search for Jennifer Schultz? I don't even know how to say this girl's name. Schultz? Schulte. Who knows? It's French. AKA Barbecue Becky. That'll do. <laughs> memes galore. Memes galore. But these individual narratives have piled up over the past four centuries. And the state has used violence and police force to control, disenfranchise, and disrupt the political organization of underrepresented peoples as a tactic by this so-called country since it emerged. Regular folks have also found ways to operationalize the state and governmental services to further marginalize and harm minoritized peoples. And while, unfortunately, it's nothing New on college campuses. This particular thread of incidents occurring on college campuses where white folks Yeah, let's make are, that
1: clear. Yeah. <laughs> where white, white
0: folks right. are calling the police on students of color. It's very visible. And not new, but visible. Allegedly, Jennifer was associated with Stanford, though they clarified earlier this week that they all know that chick.
1: They put that statement out quick. They
0: did. She's she, not She on got that. some
1: degrees from here, but she ain't no faculty
2: member. Exactly. <laughs>
0: And so I found this meme, this flow chart for white people, very helpful. <laughs> um, y'all might have seen this online. I'm yeah, going to read we'll have to tweet things. it out when the episode oh, drops. We have to. Yeah. Are they committing a crime? No. Do not fucking call the cops. Are they committing a crime? Unsure. Do not fucking call the cops. Are they committing a crime? Yes. Are you sure? No. Do not fucking call the cops. <laughs> Are you sure? I'm positive. What kind of crime? They're just being loud. Ask them to keep it down and then do not fucking call (laughs) the cops. Right. You know, you call the cops for if someone's lighting a house on fire trying to create you know some kind of murder scene somewhere you know hacking somebody up. It's okay to call the cops on someone that's egregiously harmful but if they're just living and breathing you can miss me. So Cameron you do a lot of work with racial battle fatigue. How do you make sense of recent happenings as it relates to the policing of minoritized bodies on historically white college campuses?
1: The memes have been hilarious yeah. right In us finding humor in these situations. It's been a traditional coping mechanism for us as a people for centuries but I don't want Want to minimize the trauma the damage, the dehumanization that we as a people, for number one, the people that are experiencing it are going through. And then for us that have went through it to constantly see that it's in some ways still subconscious trauma that we have to go through, right? And figuring out how to be, how to exist. We just want to live. I remember one of my participants in a study I did said, you know, I just want to live, right? Like I just want to be and not having space to do that. So I also don't want that to be minimized, right? That those lived experiences some white people might see these things as very trivial very minimal nobody was called a nigger that just continually <laughs> perpetuates the systemic racism at play right so for me it's like i feel fear or i'm uncomfortable therefore i need to call in right and somebody made this point online but like they know what they're doing when They're calling the police, they as in white people. You know that state violence is happening, but you're still going to call the police, right? Like, that's the part that I'm just like, no, Becky, you get no passes. You're going to get dragged for days and days. And I was thinking about the woman at Yale, right? She's a repeat offender. People on you CNN talking about, yeah, she called the cops on me too, right? Mm. Like this is now how you are navigating the world with your racist ideologies over and over again, right? Like who else you've called the cops on? I was thinking about, was it Bob Marley's daughter in the Mm -hmm. uh, Airbnb situation? I have been in so many Airbnbs. I have been in so many situations with my friends where we're here for a kiki. And because I didn't smile at you and wave Policing of my body in situations where I'm just living and the PhD behind my name, the job title, none of those things will ever, ever protect me from your racist actions.
0: To quote an ancient philosopher, you still in a coop. Thank you, Kanye. I do. Old Kanye, not new Kanye. (laughs) Old Kanye. I think the other thing is like this whole interaction or failure to understand the premise behind Black Lives Matter, for example, Um, and the fact that we even have to fight every day just to demonstrate that we ought to exist, that we deserve to exist, that we're valuable beings. They're blatant about the fact that they feel we are replaceable. Mm -hmm. You understand that this is a national epidemic and it has been for generations at this point. Yeah. And. Those with any kind of understanding of generational trauma also recognize like we're consuming our own traumas and we're also still digesting the traumas of the past. The fact that you would weaponize the state against me as I
1: mean, they've been doing it
0: right as a civilian and not as someone like a direct arm of that government or that state. It just further lets me know why some of these initiatives while some of these groups and actions still exists and i find it disheartening that people don't understand why we are still upset and in defense of our own experiences and well-being one year remember when Patino was at acpa mm-hmm. uh, Bettina's my favorite right <laughs> hey tina at one point Bettina was talking about how people like to say we're angry, we're aggressive, we're abrasive, and the comment was made, no, actually, we are probably the most optimistic people you know, because if we were actually angry, if we actually demonstrated the accumulation of distrust, regret, harm, violence that has been acted out on our bodies— we would burn this shit down.
1: You ain't I, seen a revolution, right? right.
0: <laughs> Langston Hughes said, oh, be fearful when I'm angry, right? Be fearful when I'm upset. One day, maybe that day will come when we just had enough, and I don't know what the tipping point will be.
1: Stop calling the fucking police. This concept of these other white people seeing their white colleagues, their white friends, their white mamas do this, mm-hmm. right? And the complacency of either not calling it out or number two, that was wrong. Not saying that and calling that out as well when it happens. That's why I appreciated the white woman in the Becky barbecue video. <laughs> She's like, show me on a map where you can't have the grills, right? Like that's what needs to now happen Calling the police will always be weaponized against us, right? Mm-hmm. And to these well-meaning, nice white folks check their white friends, their white colleagues. Get your people when you see this on college campuses, right? Are you the one, oh, I don't want to get involved. Are you the one, oh, that has nothing to do with me. Those are questions that you need to be asking yourself as well
0: thinking about you know i do some work on creation of police forces on college campuses and i do think there needs to be a broader conversation also about what it means to have a police presence on a college campus we need to also hold ourselves more accountable to how we prepare ourselves to be in these spaces i think it should be an actual competency at this point if you are a faculty or staff member on a college campus this should be a requirement Not a suggestion. I think if you cannot actively demonstrate an understanding, some empathy, a finesse around equity and social justice issues, I don't think you're hireable.
1: You're going to have to burn the whole higher education system down. Well, I'm going to keep Morris
0: Brown. But (laughs) Morris, I'm coming for you. You know, okay, this is a side note, y'all. But I do want to poach some really great alumni from other institutions, find some really great grants, and revitalize Morris Brown. And then we can let everything else fall. (laughs) But I just think also there need to be some repercussions around individuals who are misusing the police. Yeah,
1: I tweeted this. There was an mm. article in The Washington Post, right? Like since there's no consequences right. for calling the police for no reason. So I'm going to keep calling the police for no reason. Right. Mm-hmm. And so until there are consequences for these people, so either you're paying a tax bill, something for either financially or um, in the sense of a citation or whatever. There needs to be some type of, like you're saying, repercussion for your blatant racism
0: yeah it's been on the forefront of my mind and so when trevor noah actually talked about it on his more recent show i was like yes he was like there should always be like a five dollar (laughs) deposit and if you know i show up and there was an actual legitimate issue sure i'll give you your money back if not i'm finding the hell out of your ass like i just think there's no accountability for the people that are doing these deeds and that's a part of the conversation that also needs to be more formulated
1: so that's what's happening in these racist streets All right. So our special guest scholar this week is Dr. Vijay Kanagala. Vijay, welcome. Welcome to Scholar Tea. Welcome. It's
2: great to be here.
1: Yes. Thank you for engaging with us, taking some time um, to spend with us and, and share with the people. So Vijay, can you introduce yourself? Let us know who you are,
2: what you're about. Hi, everyone. My name is Vijay Kanagala, use he, him pronouns, and I am a fourth-year assistant professor at the University of Vermont up in the New England region. To talk a little bit about myself and identify South Asian, Desi, you know, in terms of racial ethnic background, just a little bit about my scholarship. I am most interested in understanding first-generation limited-income students, but also looking at the experiences of students of color at predominantly white institutions. And some of my work in the past has been about Latino students at Hispanic serving institutions. A new area of scholarship that I'm getting into is um, looking at the experience of South Asian and Desi American students in higher ed.
1: So Vijay, I have known you now for over eight years. And um, I first met you because I was interested in pursuing a doctorate at Iowa State University. And you were the first person I met when I got off the plane. I would love to hear your thoughts on our first encounter.
2: So this is the story of how I met Cameron. This is 2010
1: yeah, spring 2010
2: so I happened to be finishing up my doctorate and I was also coordinating the doctoral admissions process at Iowa State, which is our alma mater. And I had to go pick up Cameron at the airport the night before I event and I brought along my really good close friend who I call Cuz, Joyce Louis. I don't know. it was pretty late and
1: it was like midnight. <laughs>
2: You have to say that, right? (laughs) It was close to midnight, and um, I still had some work left for the next day. I think it was beginning, I don't know, 8 o'clock or something, and I didn't want to go home and then come back to work to do all of it. So I dragged Cameron from the airport to go to our education building, which we call Lago, Lago Marcino Hall. Yeah, Cameron was just sitting there watching me make copies and everything. And I kept telling him we would leave in five minutes, but I think it was probably an hour or two before we went home. But I also want to say that I was living in a two-bedroom apartment and I didn't have an extra bed. So I went to Minneapolis to Ikea, purchased a new bed for Cameron, you know, comforters and all that stuff and wanted to make him feel special but you know what I had work to do and it got late and I was like ah this is not gonna go okay with Cameron and he had I think he had an 8 o'clock meeting or something the next I day had
1: inter- they had interviews assistantship interviews
2: yeah so I was like I don't know I feel like I need to drop you <laughs> no but I was I, I had to
1: be gracious because I was like oh this man went and bought a bed to entertain I was like you did not have to do that <laughs>
2: I was trying to, I don't know, emotional blackmail there for a second. Be like, I did all this, to so hang in there for a second. But also, I think at, at some point, said, you know what, it's time to go home now. <laughs> so anyway, we went home. It was pretty late. And no, everything worked okay. And Cameron came to Iowa State. We all lived in the same neighborhood. We had great times. And...
1: It's been my brother ever since. And
2: I want to say, yeah, I mean, it was like it was late. But knowing our timelines and you know when we go to bed, it didn't feel that late.
1: You were on, you, no, 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 no. You were on Central Standard Time. My body was on Eastern Standard Time. It was late. I'm like, how did it feel <laughs> for you, Cameron? <laughs> and I had just, I sorry, this people are like this story too long. But I had took a flight from ACPA there, and it was like the longest flight ever. Yeah. So, so. VJ, talk to the people about your um, professional pathway. How you chose the faculty route? I know you did a little bit of administration. So like, how did you get to where you are now?
2: I wasn't in student affairs to begin with. I was getting a PhD in microbiology at Iowa State. and not, I mean, I, I enjoyed working in the lab and all that, but I had a good advisor who... Saw that I didn't have the passion for the profession that I was going to get into and gently nudged me to go do something else, which is when I landed a position in the Dean of Students office at Iowa State. Was working there, took classes, got an MBA, and then happened to work with uh, Laura Rendon, Professor Rendon, she's retired from University of Texas, San Antonio. And I think it was one of my conversations with her, I was talking about how I was reading a lot of the texts and you know, the literature in all of my classes, and I did not see myself in any of the readings or the discussions. Right, so I was very upset about it, and I used to constantly complain about it, I think. And at one point, she said, you can complain about it, or you can change it. And part of changing it is to go do the scholarship. Because up until that time, I don't think I even thought about being a faculty, right? Uh, I was going to be a director of a multicultural student affairs office, be a dean of students. I mean, those were the things that I had the mentoring for, but not necessarily being a faculty. And she was probably the first one to suggest that I think of that as an option. So when I finished my doctorate, she also um, recruited me to go to University of Texas, San Antonio, to go do a postdoc with her and help set up the Center for Research and Policy in Education, um, and which was probably the best experience I've had in, in terms of understanding how to do research and uh, writing grants and meeting people to talk about new ideas. It was very instrumental in, in me thinking how I want to pursue the professoriate. And I, I did a postdoc there for a year, and it was a total of three years. But my first year, I thought I was going to be, you know, moving on. But we ended up getting some grant money, and Dr. Rendon convinced me to stay. And um, I worked there for a couple more years, and then started applying for positions and chose to come to you, the University of Vermont.
0: Why do you feel it is important to build coalitions in higher education to address issues of justice and equity?
2: So I I wouldn't be here today if it was not for all of of the people that supported me. And I say that in in the context of, you know, my family immigrated from India. My family and I, we didn't necessarily think of race as a concept. As with most immigrant communities, our family bought into the, um, quote-unquote, American dream. So essentially economic success. But when I came to Ames, Iowa, I think a little bit of the innocence and the truth was shattered in terms of race and racism. You know, just moved continents and family had moved here, but we also didn't have the language to talk about race. And so a lot of people supported me through that process and helped me understand who I was. And I still remember, you know, working with some of the staff on campus, especially uh, black scholars and black administrators and practitioners at Iowa State who kind of like took me under the wing, mentored me, helped me understand issues of identity around race, gender, sexuality, sexual orientation, religion, all of it came through those years. And I also ended up going to the National Conference of Race and Ethnicity, which is probably what I call my rebirth in higher education. It was was important to do that. And so when I realized that what people have done for me, then I have to understand how I can do that for other communities and also... Also thinking about the South Asian community, right? And and it's a pretty recent immigrant community post-1965. It's important to talk about issues of diversity within the community in terms of who is South Asian and who isn't, and who gets privileged to use the title, but also the relationship of South Asians with other communities of color vis-a-vis the white communities. I think Iowa State gave me a lens to think about how can education be a pathway to bring about change in society, if you will. And so it's important for me in that context to build coalitions because there's so much richness in our communities that we don't necessarily think about, um, and we always tend to come from deficit-based frameworks. And so this work has helped me think about our communities from an asset, asset-based framework of what justice and equity could look like. What else do y'all got for me? <laughs> oh, you
1: know we have more. So, thinking about your identities and, and the intersections of your identities, what challenges have you encountered as they relate to your personal identities and your professional identities? And that could be in the field of higher education or even more broadly.
2: The big part of that, I don't think people know what to do with me, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Because people tend to talk about race in a black-white binary. And I'll give you an example of what happened. I was sick during AERA, and I come back and you know, finally found time to go to the doctor, go to urgent care, get checked in. I'm there for about three-hour wait. It was a three-hour wait Mm-mm. to be a doctor. And then the nurse came in, did the vitals and all that stuff. And then she said, uh, where are you from? And you know, for an Asian person, that's always the first question you get. And So by now, I've developed a mechanism of, of how do I respond? part of this question. So I said, Essex, because that's what the registration desk asked me. And I said, Essex. And I was fine response. And, and the nurse was like, no, I meant what country are you from? And I said, well, I'm from here. And she was like, oh. And I said, why are you surprised? She said, I thought you're from Africa.
1: Shut up.
0: Shut up. And I was like,
2: I said, I said, what do you mean I'm from Africa? She goes, your skin color and your hair. You look African. And I was like, well, I mean, I guess with skin color, you could say it was darker, but my hair is also very different. No, it's one of those moments when you panic the white people tend to touch your hair, and, she and I'm like, please don't do that. And you, then, I'm sorry,
1: you were thinking this, or she actually touched her hair?
2: She was reaching out, I guess, Stop. in a way. She was she was to me. So then I said, no, A, I was sick, and I don't want to deal with this. I just want to get my medicine and get out of there. So I ended up asking her, I said, what country are you from? <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> Now, I don't know, my friend Stephanie Bondi, you know, if she listens, to this, she'll laugh about this because this happened at Iowa State. The nurse, there was a nurse called Julia, and this ha- nurse also happened to be Julia.
1: Yeah, Karens and Julias.
2: <laughs> I mean, you know how that people are like, you know, by J, or people call me different names with the J, and they'll mix me up with Spanish names and, you know, use the Spanish letter for my J. And I'm like, no, mm-hmm. it's not by J, or it's the J, and that's it, right? So when I asked her, what, what country are you from? She was shocked, and she said, well, I'm from here, I'm American. I said, no, I meant, like, what country are you really from?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Or or continent, (laughs) because you look like a whole continent.
2: She was confused. And so then I said, no, I really mean like, no, you're obviously, I don't know if you were born here, but you came from somewhere. What is that country? And she started talking about like, no, her grandfather, I think was from Ireland and somebody was on the Titanic. So I said, oh, okay. I said, oh, they were on the Titanic and they survived. And she was like, yeah. And then I said, no, just to give you a good response, just to let you know, my family's from India. I don't know why you thought I was African or from Africa. And she was like, well, I really can't tell the difference between you people.
0: (gasps) Stop ma'am.
2: Because when I, and she said, when I went to Africa, um, I saw people like you there. And I'm thinking, wait, hey, you don't go to Africa. Like, what? you went to a country. Africa is not a country. I don't want to, like, get into geography here. I have a sinus infection. I'm irritated. So to go back to the question, like, you know, in terms of intersection.
1: The blatant ignorance, though. Just the blatant ignorance.
2: So when you have something like that going on, that's that's my personal life, right? That's happening when I you know I'm not on, not writing or not teaching or anything like that. But that happens from a, from a personal standpoint. But you also have the same thing happen in professional spaces. Mm-hmm. You know, your faculty colleagues in the college or people across campus or students that you work with don't understand who you are. Right, and you can explain to them, and with the students, especially, you know, I take time to engage with them about identities and all that. It works out okay, but even with faculty colleagues, people don't understand. Like, what do you mean you're South Asian? Or, and I've had faculty colleagues at UVM also talk about, and I don't know if I can talk about my colleagues specifically here, but I've had this happen everywhere else too, where people want to understand when I say my family lives in Jersey, to them, it's. What do you mean, Jersey? You know, people want to know, where, where do I spend Thanksgiving? And I say, Jersey, and they're like, oh, you're not going home, like, as in India? So it becomes challenging. The other part of it is, like, my mom lives with me. And I, when I tell people, I always say I live with my mom. Because you know, culturally, that's probably more... I live in my mom's house, essentially, because everything in the house except for my bedroom is my mom's. And so people don't understand that. People want to understand, well, when is your mom leaving? Do not you have a personal life? Or So there are cultural ways of understanding that are challenging to explain. And they're probably challenging to other South Asians too. And I, I mean, this is not... Living with your mom is probably not something that's very common for a lot of people across cultures, but it's something that I am responsible for, for my mom, but my mom also is responsible for me, and that's the relationship we have, right? So that's been an interesting aspect. When people think of me and my work, people always want to understand why I don't want to do things over the weekend or beyond a certain time of the day because I always want to have dinner with my mom because she's, you know, she's at home and retired. And I say retired as in she was a homemaker, but she still takes care of things at home. And so I want to go back in time and spend some time with her. And I worry, I mean, I live in Vermont. You know, here's an Indian woman wearing a sari and walking a dog on the streets in Vermont. And I don't know who is going to say what to her. Do you live in that constant fear that's there in the back of your mind? But you also hope that people around here are really kind. And I have a really good you know, good network of community of friends here. But the fear exists. Things that are happening around the country, I have to constantly keep thinking about it. And I've had, I haven't had colleagues who've said, well, you're not black, so those things won't happen to you. And part of me wants to say, well, how do you know? Well, I was going to say, like uh, like in the classroom space, when you're talking about higher ed, what I, and it's also a new thing for me, when you're a staff person, I think students think of you differently. And when you're a faculty, uh, especially in a program like a student-based program, students really want to see people, uh, yes, I'm a faculty of color, but I'm not a black faculty member. What does it mean for Students who are black in my program or students that are Latino or East Asian, for that matter. They don't necessarily know how to interact with me or feel like I don't have a sense of understanding of their experiences, right? And so that's something that I've also encountered where students are like, well, you're not really part of us, which, you know, kind of like going back to the early question, how do you build coalitions? I think that's taken a lot of my time to engage with people and explain, no, I do care about you and we ought to care about each other.
1: So we're running out of time. And one of the things we like to do with our guest is we like to do this thing called the speed round. And what it is, is we will give you two options. And you have to pick one and you need to pick the first thing that comes into your mind. Would you like to play with us, VJ? Okay. All right. Um, So the first is Vermont syrup or Vermont ice cream.
2: It's not ice cream in Vermont. It's the creamy. So I'll take a creamy.
1: (laughs) It's called creamy?
2: Yeah. That sounds nasty. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Hey, trust me. We call Vermont uh, creamies ice cream. People will give you the stinky eye.
0: Wait. So you have to go, like, if you go up to a shack or something to get ice cream, you say, can I get a creamy?
2: No, there are ice creams. I mean, we have Ben and Jerry's here, right? Uh Uh-huh. But a soft serve ice cream is called a creamy here. Oh, okay. a soft serve, either. <laughs> I still remember being told to go get a creamy my first time, and I said, "Oh, <laughs> it's a soft serve. they're like, no, it's not a soft serve. It's it's
1: a creamy." Oh, you're teaching the people today.
0: <laughs> okay, okay. Think fast. Think fast. Yeah. Early bird
1: or night owl? Night owl. Okay, so since I know you, I think I can ask you this question. But if you're offended, then let's just pass it on by. So, tikka masala or tandoori chicken?
2: Tandoori chicken.
1: <laughs> Facebook or Twitter?
2: Facebook.
1: Kinda. Of. <laughs> <laughs> huge party or intimate gathering? Ah.
2: Uh, oh. Uh, can I have an intimate gathering at a huge party? <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> um,
1: VIP section.
0: Hardcover book or Kindle?
2: Hardcover book.
1: VJ, thank you for coming and spending time with us. Thank you for sharing yourself and showing yourself to the people. We really appreciate you and we appreciate your time.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much, Shana and Cameron. And thank you for doing this. I, I love Gala Tea.
0: Thank you again, BJ, for spending some time with us. We really appreciate you. And I am I need to tell you, though, so I was traveling up to Potsdam, New York, the other day, and I did see the creamy sign. So I was acting like I didn't know what you were talking about. You didn't try it? Hell no. It looks nasty. But I acted like I didn't know what he was talking about. But he, it's, Ice it's cream. a thing. It's so nasty. That's so nasty.
1: <laughs> yeah. Thanks, VJ.
0: So this is something random. And we're going to do it randomly. You'll never know when it's coming. We're going to ask a random question of the week. And today's question is, what are some words that folks use that truly get under your skin?
1: So my students and the students that have had me the past two years know that this is a word that they are not allowed to use in their writing or in class. And that word is effective. And I've been teaching assessment and research for the past two years. And I also have stopped doing this. And when I read people's syllabi, it annoys me too. Students will effectively be able to blah, blah, blah. Like they write this in their learning outcomes. And I'm like, what the hell does effectively mean, right? So I tell my students they can't use it in like their assessment reports or assessment projects. And then I was like, just don't use it in your, in your writing for a class either, right? There's other words that you can use that can really get at and be a descriptor of what you're trying to say. And I think the word effective is very lazy.
0: So what words would you suggest?
1: I mean, it depends on the context mm-hmm. and what and what people are doing, right? So to me, if you're writing a learning outcome, then tell me what the student is going to be able to do as a result of whatever the class is, right? To say somebody can effectively do something, that tells me nothing that the student is actually going to be able to do.
0: I have two. <laughs> the first one is all extensive purposes mm. instead of all intensive. <laughs> 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 it's just, it's intensive. Yeah. Not extensive. And the other one is essentially. I think it sounds so pretentious. Like essentially. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. No, shut up.
1: So, do you know what word, like what phrase? I misused this all the way up to grad school. Oh, which one? <laughs> the bane of my existence. <laughs> I, I thought it was the bane of my existence. <laughs> the vein, like in your neck. <laughs> I was like, oh, Bane. Because like, I, I went to write it out, and I was like, mm. okay, this doesn't.
0: Well, I don't like it also when people say, and I hear this every day, I feel like, deep-seated. Mm. It's deep-seated. Seated? Yeah. Yeah, like yeah. a seed in the the ground, not deep. Like, what is a deep-seat, <laughs> people? So those are some words. Oh, Cameron, well, at least you turned it around. Like the hokey pokey. <laughs> <laughs> So we're going to spill a little tea. So we received a letter from a dear colleague, and we're going to read some of it and then just talk through some of the issues and then try to parse out some of the concerns that we noticed. Yeah,
1: there's some layers here. Mm -hmm. Go ahead.
0: So this person wrote, I am only a year into my higher ed career and navigating PWIs as a black woman administrator, and it's been very challenging. There has been a mass exodus of faculty and staff of color, mostly black, here at this institution since I started, and it's literally only been a year. I understand this is probably not new to higher ed, as we, black faculty and staff, aren't typically appreciated, but I also came across an article in the Chronicle about the unique experiences of being a black professor and being tried daily by these white children. Students have been organizing around this here at my institution, but it doesn't seem that the administration cares enough to address it or look into our own structures to see why everyone is leaving. We have also been through three CDOs in the last two years. I'm struggling because this is the most money I've ever made in my life, and being a fairly younger person, stability and being able to get these graduate loans in check are a priority, but I feel as though my personal values are being challenged daily. So, Cameron and I, we looked into this situation, and we found at this particular institution that an article was written by the students, and from the students' perspective, they indicated 11 faculty and staff of color are leaving the institution by the end of this academic year, and it seems the institution isn't investing time or resources into actively recruiting, but more importantly, retaining a diverse faculty and staff. And further, the institution is undergoing a hiring freeze, so it's very unlikely that this campus will see diversification efforts anytime soon. Oftentimes, the affinity centers will experience vacancies where the positions are left unfilled, and thus the spaces that students are relying on and utilize as an identity-based resource are also shrinking. We have a quick quote, and uh, the students indicated, We, as two students of color, are tired of seeing our professors and staff who support us treated as unvaluable commodities, we cannot know the reasons behind every individual's departure, but in listening to our professors and staff stories, we have heard their fears, their feelings of unsafety and mistreatment at this university.
2: Ooh.
1: I feel like this could have been written at the institution I'm currently at and leaving. It, it wasn't, to make that clear, but uh,
2: mm-hmm. yeah,
1: just really quick. Mm-hmm. So I got cornered a couple of weeks ago by our university president. Word. <laughs> uh, we were at an event and I didn't even know he knew my name. uh comes up to me and he's like hey I heard you're leaving I was like oh yeah yeah I got a really amazing opportunity blah 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 so then he's like is there something we did (laughs) but it's like it was just an awkward I was like this is an amazing opportunity you know like there wasn't anything necessarily in the situation where it's like oh I want to stay here in that sense right like it wasn't like I was looking to leave Mm -hmm. no it wasn't that what has happened obviously that's happening I don't think this institution is unique in any shape Mm -hmm. form um rhyme or reason um because it's happening across the country and it's been happening Mm -hmm. right and the poor babies are extremely frustrated because in some ways like they feel abandoned right but they also understand where their faculty are coming from. And for me, there are a few of us Black faculty that are leaving my current institution. And all of us are leaving for different reasons, right? But the current climate is not something we're putting in the on the pro side of like, oh, I should stay here, right? Like giving the climate of any institution. But thinking about the tax, thinking about the burden, thinking about um, some of these things, where can I go and be valued maybe just a little bit more? right? Like I think that comes into play in some people's minds. Like Where can I go and be valued at least a little bit more than what I'm getting here? Where are the resources that I might have to do what I want to do? I know I'm going to have to put up with the bullshit wherever I go, mm-hmm. right? but is there a place where I can go where I might get more resources, where I can do more work, where I can make more contribution, To the academy. And I think that's a factor. I know that was a factor for me that came into play when deliberating my decision. But I also thought about those students. Right. I thought about those students where I'm the only black professor Mm -hmm. that they've ever had. And that's an inspiration for them. Right. Those people were in my mind. Right. When making a decision like that. Those type of decisions speaking from experience don't come. Lightly, But sometimes these institutions sometimes make it easier for that decision to be made. I will say places are taking care of faculty of color, have strong academic leadership. The president is one thing, but to have strong academic leadership is something that... How you define that? Strong academic leadership, number one, is knowing that there's issues, and knowing that there's issues on the campus that most of the time are happening in the classroom. Where there's not strong academic leadership, this is a campus issue, this is a climate issue, this is happening in student affairs, this is happening in the residence hall, it's happening in fraternity and sorority life. People that can't name that the issues are happening in the classroom, that the racial microaggressions are coming from the faculty, that the racism is rooted in the curriculum. People that know that and can name that and then work through processes to some type of way mitigate that and address that is where I see strong academic leadership happening all the way on the continuum of we're all a community here we're one big happy family like I see that too and that to me that's just not strong leadership the other thing is being able to hold faculty accountable right okay we can keep talking about academic freedom we can keep talking about faculty or their own governing body or whatever but a provost knows or an academic administrator or academic leader knows that there's always going to be work to do and how do I get people to buy into the work and hold them accountable for that work
0: And I think I would add a strong academic leadership that understands and embraces the power of staff. because staff are the ones that end up cleaning up all those messes Mm -hmm. at the end of the day. And I have observed several institutional structures where the division is actually clearly outlined in a way that replicates those issues, even amongst populations of color who might be, um, for lack of a better term, on different sides of the house. Right, That would also contribute to developing a more healthy community. But I think the other aspect of this is like, well, I am young. I need to pay my bills. How do I protect myself in yeah, this environment? That's, a layer. She, that's she unhealthy. About. Maybe I can't leave right away, so I have to make this work. I do believe in the ideology of not bending over backwards for something that will replace you when you die. And I've actually had colleagues pass away on the job mm. and within a month they were replaced and within three years there's like no conversation about those individuals anymore those institutions like some students don't even realize they existed in that space also making sure that you are creating a a healthy psychological barrier and creating some armor around your emotional well-being is super important finding avenues of connection outside of your institution if they don't exist at your current institution is fundamental finding ways to escape that place I think we talked about that before Mm -hmm. like the proof is in the pudding as a relates to removing yourself from spaces of trauma and the workplace can be a traumatic place for people especially minoritized folks right Mm -hmm. so for this particular colleague like trying to navigate that space may not be where you would want to put your energy maybe it's more around how do i protect myself until i can find another opportunity
1: And the other thing is, what do you have control over? Right. If you have space to be creative, to create an initiative, to create a program, to let your work speak for itself. Right. Like there's bullshit everywhere. Right. And I said this to my students, like you get to determine whether you're going to step in the bullshit and then continue carry the bullshit around the house. Right. Mm -hmm. You get to determine that part of it. Right. But there's bullshit everywhere. And it stinks. You try right. to drop them gems today, Cameron. <laughs> I, I said that to my students, they? Yeah. they they got it. We'll see how it carries out in their practice. <laughs> but um, but really thinking about that, right? So then, what do I have control over? And in this space, our friend John Cody I think, does this really well. He has control over the types of programs, the type of initiatives that he gets to do with students, and he does that well to the maximum. So then, other people are like, "How do you do this in this time in the in this space?" In many ways, why many of us are doing the work and in mm-hmm. this field is for the students and for the impact of students. So how do you recenter that so you get energy from that when you know that you're going to get drained in other aspects of the work of the work environment?
0: Mm-hmm. It's a juggling act.
1: Especially for, I think young professionals, it's, it's really hard. They will yeah. take
0: advantage of them. Yeah. And so that's the bigger thing, like creating a, a space that allows you to say no And feeling empowered to say no when you're asked to take on the load of all those people that are going to (laughs) leave. You know, like this person's going to have a lot more uh, student interaction than estimated before just by basis of the emotional impact of all those departures. So knowing then to be able to say yes to the students and say no to maybe some of that busy work that they give them, particularly because it's their first or second job. And then finding someone that can say it for you, too, when you don't have the clout that you need to say it. Right.
1: Make people leverage their privilege. Mm-hmm. You got Sometimes you have to make people leverage their privilege for you. Find
0: a Karen. Well, please stay in touch. And if there's any way we could continue to support you, reach out. We will be there. So we're going to talk about some hotep black men.
1: What's problematic this week? <laughs> so for those of you that have caught up oh my God. <laughs> on Dear White People, <laughs> volume two, Shana, Shana. Can y'all be in Shauna's comment section? She ain't even started. I'm too busy watching Big Love right now.
0: Oh, I love Big Love. <laughs> I went back to it. Oh, my gosh. See? I
1: love it. It's such good writing. Mm-hmm. I love no, that show. I don't know about that. It's really
0: cheesy. So? I mean, I remember watching it when it first came out and it was my jam. And now I'm going back because I don't remember it. And there's like I stopped watching it after a while. And no, oh, it's, some of the dialogue. it's super bad. Well, I think
1: I think the, the storyline is, I think, what I mean by the good yeah, writing. I like it. Like, it's just like I feel like I was a voyeur into polygamous lifestyle. See? Just so, so are you still shaming me yep that and the reason why i'm shaming you is because like so the it's have you have you heard anything about dear white people i mean i know what it is it's williams college I like know. it really is it, like it's why a liberal I wanna, arts i it's, don't want to i'm trying to get away i know but like you get the lost in the world Ah, uh, i'm it's, lost here it's so
0: good China. Uh, maybe when i le-
1: shame her into watching it people <laughs> shame her <laughs> anyways this season, on, mm-hmm. I'm not going to try to give a, I'm not, a small spoiler, but someone goes on a date with this wonderful black man. He's like dreamy. He's like invested in her. And she's like, oh, nobody has showed interest in me like this. And he's like down for the cause, but he's not staying in the black dorm. And she wants to understand why are you not staying in the black dorm? Like you said, woke, you're down. Not to give it all away. Turns out to be a whole tip black man. Mm. And whole tip black man are popping up more and more in the academy, being masked as these woke men, and they're becoming extremely problematic. And their scholarship is becoming extremely problematic. And I'm not just talking about higher ed; I think across the academy, right? Mm. So, for those of you not familiar with whole tip, this is I took some uh, notes from the from theroot.com. Um, so whole tip can be a noun and an adjective, um, and sometimes in the same sentence, right? Um, so I didn't realize he was a whole tip until I friended him on Facebook and he kept sharing whole tip memes, um, on a timeline. Um, whole tip can also be a verb, Um, You need to whole tip up your language a bit more kings and queens whole tip is looking for the following, right? So this steadfast belief in illogical conspiracy theories, um, (laughs) an arrogant adherence to respectability politics, sexism and homophobia that vacillate from thinly veiled to if being gay is natural. How come there ain't any gay elephants? And there are. Ignorant (laughs) ass. unbowed and uncompromising support for any black man accused of any wrongdoing even if said man's guilt is clear cosby r kelly mm. ashy ankles <laughs> they always got ashy ankles
0: and sandals <laughs>
1: <laughs> them damn nike flip-flops it's hard you got to
0: all that uphill walking keep it dry so what are your thoughts on the whole
1: t- do you know some whole tips hell
0: yeah hell yeah i do I feel like I was recently encouraged to be loving and thoughtful in my critique of my community. Also, I think y'all can miss
1: me. Are you code switching right now? No,
0: <laughs> I'm just, I'm trying to uh, bring that uh, mood down from Jesus be a fucking fence to.
1: <laughs> you trying to package this with a nice little ribbon and some bow. Yeah. Let I, them have it. I was
0: just recently <laughs> reminded to be more thoughtful and caring is all. Look, I'm trying to be great right now. Um,
1: you always great, friend. Oh, thank you.
0: No, I I do know several i know several in uh our field specifically mm-hmm. i know uh quite a few in africana studies
1: Ooh. and and actually Ooh. more recently
0: I'm saw those me- <laughs> <laughs> there was like this whole little rundown of what like, so what does it mean to be uh working in africana studies or doing work on the political nature of africa and you married a white woman and i don't know someone had a lot of time and then started making a long list of people i, think I see this I- did you repost posi- this Oh, no, no, no. Oh, okay. No, I did <laughs> Because I have too many. So, <laughs> but I just, I do have a problem with folks that use blackness as, use it as a costume, as a black person. They use like these typified understandings of blackness. Yes, yes, right? yes. And not,
1: DL talked about this on the first episode. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Thanks, DL. I just... Mm, you
1: down for black lives matter but not them trans lives right like all of that and right not even yeah
0: really for black lives because you found out who the founders were oh <laughs> So and and then who's black lives, right? Because I feel like there's this other piece of trying to demonstrate intelligence and and use mm. um, use mechanisms of power and privilege in your benefit mm. um, as if you were got some fraternity
1: uh, brothers like don't I know it. as mm. a member mm. of
0: this structure, and you're you're not. You're just trying to do what they do to us, and you feel empowered because you might be able to do it to someone else. Yeah. So I've just noticed like this also comes with an ascendance in social class.
1: Ooh. Um, we haven't talked about black male privilege. We maybe need to talk about that later. But this black male privilege also shows up in the, in we'll interesting ways. We'll have
0: Dr. DeAndre Thompson on because <laughs> we've been reminiscing on his theories on black male privilege for at least the last 10 years. And it's hilarious. Hey, but, friend! And congratulations again, love. It really burns me up because you wouldn't be anywhere if it weren't for the work of queer folks, if it weren't for the work of Chicana, black, native, indigenous women. And so the fact that you want to then uh, center yourself and your maleness in this are, are Blackness? Mask it in
1: how much you love black women and black mm. queens and Queen. blah blah blah.
0: Like, mm-hmm. but
1: then you you're the first to disrespect. We as black men are the first to disrespect, right? Black women, how do you respond to them? Then, ooh, you put me on a spot. Uh huh. The more mature, aged over thirty, Cameron. Has no energy and no time for it, mm-hmm. and especially in hyper-masculine spaces. So I think about my fraternity. I think about chapter brothers. I think about those spaces. And now they just know me as like I'm gonna call it out: homophobic, sexist. I can't be the cool gay bro, right? Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so so what are the bros? What are the gay men that are not bros, right? Who are they, right? Like, and what is and what do they mean to you, right? So those are the spaces now where I feel, almost feel like it's a it's a responsibility of mine to disrupt. The hyper toxic black masculinity that shows up as Ho-Tip.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's what's problematic.
1: It's time for the jokes of the week.
0: So, yes, we have these great jokes. And again, I'm going to try and get Cameron to laugh. I thought really hard about these ones because I was like, oh, Cameron wouldn't laugh at that one. Let's do this one. So here we go. Maybe you won't laugh at this one, though. <laughs> why don't <laughs> why don't skeletons ever go trick or treating?
1: Full of bones.
0: Because they have no body to go with. No body. <laughs> Want to hear a joke about construction? Nope. I'm still working on it. <laughs> it's bad. Shush. Why do you never see elephants hiding in the trees? I don't know. Because they're good at it. <laughs> you don't see them because they're good at it. <laughs> Say <Same> thank you. <laughs> Why do melons have weddings? I don't know. Because they cantaloupe. (laughs) (laughs) I like cantaloupe. (laughs) This one, okay, this one is a special request from Kennedy. Okay. Okay, she's been trying to work from behind the scenes. and She's our executive producer. (laughs) Yes, this is her own thing. So she was laying in my bed the other day Y'all, my daughter seriously is almost five foot seven, and she's eleven years old. She was so precious in that episode
1: where she did her poem.
0: Is <laughs> it? She's so cute. She was only eight. Oh, and I tried to get her to redo it, and She's like, nah. <laughs> and um, so she's laying in my bed on her back. She had her legs in the air, right? She's just looking at him. I was like, girl, you're all legs. And she's like, I got chicken legs. And then I was like, yeah, you do. They're like really long. She's like, and I have calves. I have farm legs. <laughs> Right, and I looked at her. She's like, "Cause chickens, calves, baby cows, mom, you could put that in your, <laughs> put that in your podcast. That one's free."
1: Did you, did you say, make her sign a release? No,
0: <laughs> but if I ever make money off of this, it's mine. Yeah, so farm legs is a thing now. Farm legs for the, the girls
1: walking around here with farm legs, calves and chickens. I guess I have I have a little farm leg going on over here. Mm. No calf, just chick. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Bok bok. <laughs>
0: So congrats to Dr. Lily D. McNair, the first woman to serve as president of Tuskegee University, and to Keo Chad O'Neill for graduating as the first openly trans man from Spelman College. Also, something really cool to happen this week, Howard University alum Chadwick Boseman addressed the new Howard graduates at this year's commencement, and that's hot. Wakanda forever. A quote that continues to remain a favorite of mine was uttered by Zora Neale Hurston, In their eyes were watching God, Zora wrote, There are years that ask questions and years that answer. You may be experiencing a season where you have more questions than answers, and that's okay. Continue pushing forward and asking those questions, even when they burn. Write them down. Recount them in your dreams. One day the earth will shift under your feet, and the answers will be laid out before you. It takes determination and patience, but one day it will all make sense. Please have a blessed week.